0: This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Crismire. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Crismire. It was a message from Benjamin Ermsten. Peace and justice. Father Benjamin Jay Ermston from Xavier University, he declared one day, it dawned on me what our world would be like if we had a world democracy. I imagine how a democratic world federation could help global climate change, the global economy, and the suffering of war and violence. And at the head of the document, all 73 pages, is World Order. Add the word new, and you have it, just as the current Pope. pope. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Meyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour open-line talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. To express your viewpoint, please call 804-754-1988. That's 804-754-1988. And now, with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Meyer. Is God patient? That's an interesting question. Is God patient? And if so, why is he patient? And is it possible to test his patience? And if it's possible to test his patience, what are the consequences if we do? All of that here today on Viewpoint, and I'm glad that you've joined us. It's conversation as always. With ever increasing conviction, talk that transforms. God's patience. Why is God patient? Is he patient? In fact, the scriptures tell us, in effect, that God is patient. He is long suffering. And uh, if we look in the Old Testament, we find the character of God displayed. We find that he is patient. And the reason we know that he's patient is that he will do nothing but that he reveals what his intentions are first through his servants, the prophets, to woo and to warn the people so that they do not receive the consequences of his impatience. Or is God actually impatient at all? Or does the word patience also imply within itself that there is an end or a limit to patience all of that here today on viewpoint the problem is that you and i human beings we want to think that god is eternally patient but we feel that we don't have the ob, ob- excuse me the obligation to be eternally patient for instance a father or a mother is patient with their children hopefully And yet the parent will say, don't test my patience. What does a parent mean when the parent says, don't test my patience? Does it mean that the parent isn't patient? No. Does it mean that the parent is a mean and uh, uh, angry person all the time? No. Does it mean that the patience is not without end? Yes. So patience is a virtue. In fact, we're told by Peter that uh, we should add to our faith patience. We're supposed to add to our faith virtue, and to virtue patience, and so on. Patience. It's a critical thing for us. It's a critical thing for us to display to the world. As ambassadors for Christ, we want to display God's patience. But then again, God's patience doesn't last forever. In fact, we know that because in Genesis chapter 6, God made it very plain. He said that his willingness to put up with sin on the earth would not last forever. That's what he said. He said that to Noah, and because of that, he said, I'm going to destroy the earth. I am going to wipe out everything that breathes from the earth because the imagination of their minds and their hearts has become evil only continually. So here's the question before us. What does it mean to test God's patience? And how far are you willing to go to test his patience, realizing that his patience does have an end? His patience does have an end. All that here today on Viewpoint. I'm glad that you've joined us. It's conversation is always with ever increasing conviction. Talk that transforms. We could call this presuming upon God's patience. How long would you presume? For instance, if you were a child, let's suppose that you're a teenager, and uh, you're you're in your father or and mother's house, and you know that they have told you not to go to a certain place or not to do a certain thing. And uh, you also know that your mother and father are patient and they're not just fundamentally angry and vindictive. So as a teenager, how are you going to respond when you know precisely that what you are about to do or considering doing is contrary to the word, the will, and the ways of your parents? you're going to have to weigh in your mind whether or not you're going to test your parents' patience. Isn't that exactly what we do as followers of Christ? Isn't that exactly what we do and why we're in the deepest trouble that we are today? Because we come to the place where we know that God is patient, we know that he's long-suffering. That's what patience is, long-suffering. That he, In other words, that he puts up with us, and he puts up with our rebellion. He puts up with our sin. He puts up with our stubbornness. He puts up with our pride. And yet, down deep, we know that that willingness, that loving-kindness is not going to allow us to totally escape a righteous and a holy God, and the consequences that will flow from our rebellion and stubbornness and pride. And yet, we persist. And why is it we persist? Because we presume upon his patience. Presume upon his patience. That is a very serious situation, isn't it? Today, as I was preparing for our program I came across an article from Israel National News. The title of the article is, What is a Jew and what is an Israeli? What is a Jew and what is an Israeli? I thought, this is interesting. So the writer says, as a constant and passionate observer of Israel and Jewish history, I've been observing an accelerating problem for the identity and soul of the Jewish state. Unlike in the U.S., I believe that in Israel, it was a natural and desirable thing for all Israelis to identify as Jews and Israelis. In other words, to identify as Torah-observant Jews, the religious aspect, and also, as Israelis, the secular aspect. The term, a state of all citizens, was one that I heard years ago in the context of the radical left. It meant compromising the Jewish character of the state for the inclusion of non Jewish citizens at every level of life, even at the expense of national identity. The spirit behind those words, said the author, is that the Jewish nature of the state is basically unfair to the non Jewish citizens, and therefore the entire concept of a Jewish state was born in sin. An identity is the key word. Are you a Jew or are you an Israeli? the question of what is a Jew and what is an Israeli is constantly debated. The left likes to think about a democratic Jewish state, but democratic clearly overriding Jewish. The right prefers the Jewish above the democratic. And that was the 2,000 year identity. But what is the essence of this thing called Zionism? Is it democracy that demands the deconstruction of Judaism? Or is it a sacred thing that the united all Jews for thousands of years? It has become apparent to me, said the author, that the left is less concerned with democratic and more concerned with not Jewish. How do I know? Well, the behavior and all the decisions tell me that. Question. Is America like Israel? Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. Today we're talking about God's patience or the limits of God's patience. And what does it mean to test God's patience? What are the implications of testing God's patience? Is it possible that God is patient with people groups, not just individuals, but with people groups? And if it's possible that God is patient with people groups, does that mean that the his patience will not endure forever with people groups? It's interesting because Thomas Jefferson, who was not exactly one would call an evangelical Christian, declared, indeed I tremble. When I consider that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. What was he saying? He's saying, I tremble because I know that God is just. And that in that justice, he is patient. But I also know that that justice is not going to be permanently patient. In other words, justice is going to demand a response. It's going to demand something from a God who is just, who is merciful, who is kind, who is long-suffering, but also is a God of truth and judgment and justice. In other words, God is a hardcore both-and. Which brings us to the issue of Israel, again. With this writer saying, what is a Jew and what is an Israeli? This individual, in analyzing the situation, believes that Israel has chosen, very clearly, not to be Jewish, but to be Israeli. Now, what does that mean? In other words, to reject the foundation stones, shall we say, of what it meant to be Jewish and to embrace a different identity, an identity known as democratic Israel. He says, how do I know that that's exactly what's happened? Well, here's just a small list of things that this writer says. First, he attempts to secularize the Sabbath that symbolizes and unites the Jewish people from the very beginning. Next, The resistance to exposing Jewish children to the most basic concepts of Judaism. Third, the encouragement of the dissolution of the Jewish family. And he says the list is very long. Well, the interesting thing is that those very same identity problems have characterized America for the past 100 years. The attempts to secularize the Sabbath the resistance to exposing our children to the most basic concepts of Christianity, the encouragement of the disillusion of the Christian family or even the American family, and so on. Then the writer goes on to say the Arabs are a problem, but they're more of a symptom of the unsettled question of our own identity than the complete physical threat. Now let's analogize that to our problem that we talk about with regard to immigration or illegal immigration that would be our corresponding Arab problem but the reality is that that is only a symptom of our problem in America it's not the foundational problem the foundational problem is we have a terrible identity crisis just like Israel so in America we have a terrible identity crisis and it's getting worse That's why confusion is reigning, and chaos is the consequence of the confusion that is reigning because of our increasing choices presuming upon God's patience. So the writer concludes, our beloved Jewish state faces great challenges. The greatest, in my opinion, is the struggle for identity for the soul of the country. Well, that's our problem right here in America, isn't it? You see, God chose the Jewish people. He didn't choose Jewish persons. He chose a Jewish people. Ultimately, the only perfect representative of those people was Jesus Christ, Yeshua, who was rejected until now as Messiah. But he was the only perfect Jew. And God is... In his mercy and as Father, did not need to be patient particularly with Jesus because Jesus didn't test his patience. Jesus obeyed. That's how we know we're not testing God's patience when we obey. For to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. In other words, to obey is better than all the other religious activities and talk that we might engage in. God's not impressed with those things. What tests his patience is our disobedience. That's what tests his patience. So when a nation such as Israel, formed based on the fear of the Lord from its beginning, begins to walk away from the fear of the Lord, They will ultimately fear man. Now, that's the natural consequence of walking away from the fear of the Lord. Isn't that exactly what's happened in America? We used to be a God-fearing nation. Not everybody, but in general, we were a God-fearing nation. Even though some of the people, many of the people were not necessarily Christians. De Tocqueville noticed that back in 1830. He said it's like the Bible, the word of God, stands without question to govern the people. That's the reason why, by the way, we have so many scripture verses engraved on our national buildings. But currently, the existing government in America And the people that elected that government would like nothing better than to tear down, cover up, or somehow get rid of those biblical engravings on our national buildings. Including getting rid of the Ten Commandments that are engraved over the Supreme Court in the Supreme Court building. That means... That as a nation, as a people, as it is with Israel, so it is in America, we are actually, in effect, like teenagers, thumbing our nose at our parents. At God, we're thumbing our nose at him and testing or presuming upon his patience, virtually daring him to respond. Now, how long do you think God will be patient under those circumstances? The flood in Noah's day came about 1,600-some years after creation, after humankind, according to uh, biblical understandings of the creation of humankind on the planet, about 1,600 years later. That's how long it took for God To determine that his patience had been tested to the max. And that his patience would not endure forever. You can find that in the book of Genesis chapter 6. You don't have to go very far into the Bible to find out what's going on. You see, Adam and Eve tested God's patience right there in the garden right after the first marriage. God created man in his image, in his likeness, male and female. He created them. And he said, I've given you everything, everything you need. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to talk with you. I'm going to provide your every need. The only thing I ask is that you not uh, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden, because in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam and Eve, Tested God's patience. In fact, Satan seduced Eve to begin the process of testing God's patience. The net result of that was that after 1600 years, the echoing consequences of testing God's patience in that initial act had multiplied so greatly throughout human civilization that God ended up with this statement in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. My spirit shall not always strive with man. My spirit shall not always strive with man. Now, I want you to think about that for just a quick moment, maybe longer than a quick moment, because if God said that at that point in time, Why do you think he would not say it today? He's God. He changes not. You see, his patience is long-suffering. He is a very long-suffering God because he loves us. But that love demands justice and judgment as an expression of the very love and character of God himself. And that's what we lose sight of. So America and Israel now, the only two nations ever conceived from their get-go, shall we say, as God-fearing nations, one Jew and the other Gentile, are now at the point of the ultimate testing of God's patience. Notice I said the ultimate testing of God's patience. The interesting thing, though, is that those nations are composed of individual people. And the collective decisions, attitudes, behavior, dissing of God's obedience, and so on, all of those things are contributing to the nation's identity as a, re- a rebellious nation against the word, the will, and the ways of God as a loving and patient father. How long will God extend his patience until judgment comes? My spirit shall not always strive with man. That's why it's so very important for us to understand the concept of the fear of the Lord. It is foundational to everything. God knew that, and he said, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end. It's not just some component part. It's the very beginning. And when we lose or abandon the fear of the Lord, what we have in effect done is dared God... To continue his patience with us. I'm sorry to have to put it so bluntly, but that really is what's happening. We have now put ourselves in a trajectory course, trajectory, both Israel and America, of blatant, almost blasphemous daring of God to be patient with us. How long will his spirit strive with Israel? And how long will his spirit strive with America and Americans? That, my friends, will define how long his spirit will strive until his spirit strives with the rest of the world. Because these two nations are, shall we say, litmus paper tests of God's standing with the rest of the world. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in an interesting way. He said that ultimately God is going to conclude both Jew and Gentile in unrighteousness. He's going to conclude both Jew and Gentile in unrighteousness. In other words, your identity as a Jewish person, your identity even as a Christian American, is so horribly compromised that you can no longer be identified in the mind and heart of God as one of his people, as a nation It should be protected by his spirit. My spirit shall not always strive with Israel. My spirit shall not always strive with America. And thus hinges the history of the world in preparation for the second coming of Christ. We'll be right back after this. Stay tuned. This is Viewpoint.
1: There is so much more about Chuck Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, on the front page are two great videos. First, an interview and discussion of Chuck's book, Out of Egypt. Also, a great TV interview with Chuck regarding his book, Seduction of the Saints. Much more videos, a for pastors only section, and also you can view Chuck's weekly teachings. All at his website. Prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org.
0: What a delight it is to be with you here today on Viewpoint, as always, to confront the deepest issues of America's heart and home from God's eternal perspective. Today we're talking about the patience of the Lord. Another word for that is long-suffering. The long-suffering of the Lord. God is long-suffering, he's merciful, he's patient, but he said, my spirit will not always strive with man, with humankind. And the reason for that is there comes a moment in time when we have rebelled so greatly, we have thumbed our nose so greatly at the God who made and preserved us a nation, the God who actually sent forth his only begotten Son in the fullness of time, to give us an opportunity to be restored in faithfulness to him in relationship with him to have our spirit reborn so that we might live and not die so to speak and yet we don't value it we actually come to a place where we dare god to destroy us that's what that's that's what the people did In the days of Noah, they dared God to destroy him. And finally, God said, okay, I get the message. My spirit shall not always strive for man. You're out of here. In 120 years, you're gone. I'm going to start over with Noah. And so he gave Noah an opportunity to build an ark. God is giving you an opportunity to build an ark today. Not an ark of wood, but an ark of faith, an ark of obedience, and that's what Noah did. He obeyed God. God said, build an ark, and he said, yes, sir, and he began to do it. God told him how to do it, and he began to do it. 120 years he built the ark, and then God began to bring judgment. The people didn't realize that God's patience had run out, even though Noah As a righteous man, a preacher of righteousness was warning the people, even as he built the ark for 120 years, but they mocked him. They disregarded it, just as they do today. Just as many do, even in response to this program. Fortunately, there are many others who are hearing this message and are saying, you know what? This is the real deal. We've been playing this religious game for too long. It's time for us to get serious. It's time for us to truly be followers of the Lord and to get our act in order because Jesus is coming soon. It's not a figment of our imagination. It's actually God's entire agenda from the beginning of creation. He sent forth his only begotten son in the fullness of time to deliver us from the curse, from bondage, if we would obey him and yield humbly, and received the salvation that was offered through the blood of Christ. And he's coming back again, not to save us from our sin, but to judge the world in and for its sin. That's when God's patience runs out. Maybe you were wondering, when is God's patience going to run out? Well, we find that the first time in the scripture where the actual wrath of God is being poured out is in Revelation chapter 6 at the very end of the chapter where the wrath of God begins to be poured out. Up until then, the wrath of man, which has always been around, will be continued to be poured out. In fact, Satan's wrath through the Antichrist will also be poured out. There's going to be great tribulation, the Bible says. That means man's anger and wrath is going to be poured out. But then Christ shows up on the scene, the Savior of the world, who comes back to take those who are truly the small remnant of people who are truly following him, who are not testing his patience, but are seeking to follow him in spirit and in truth, in obedience and in love. He will take them unto himself and then begin to pour out his wrath on the children of disobedience obedience in other words on the rest of the world some people say well uh, we're going to be out of here so we don't need to worry about the wrath of man well if that were true then why does god warn us about it why does god warn us about preparing and enduring to the end in fact he says here is the patience of the saints that means you and i are living through those horrible times patiently waiting, looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ called the blessed hope of the church. We have to wait patiently for that. In other words, we endure, just like God is enduring right now the wickedness of humankind without bringing judgment. So you and I must endure and live patiently because we are of God the spirit of the Lord, the patient spirit of the Lord. We live patiently in obedience to him, notwithstanding everything else going on around us. So there's a call. If God is patient, then you and I are called to be patient. And that's why the apostle Peter said we should add to our faith, among other things, patience. We are also told to take certain things patiently. We're also to respond to persecution patiently. Take it patiently, the Apostle Peter said. We're told to be patient toward all men. We're also told to be patient in tribulation. The Apostle Paul told us that in Romans chapter 12, verse 12. In the book of Revelation, we're told, Here, though you have kept my word of my patience... He also says, I know your patience. And so, patience is a big deal. But what we don't want to do is test God's patience. Another way of looking at this matter of God's patience is... whether or not we are going to set our minds and our hearts to do that which God really has said we should not do. Let me give you an illustration. This is a question that came from one of our listeners the other day. We're not going to provide a full answer to this today, but he said, I'm attending a church where the pastor is talking about people who were both divorced and remarried to each other. So the question is, what happens to a person's soul when they remarry after divorce? That is, if their spouse, their original spouse, is still living. What happens to such a person? Since God says he hates divorce... And Jesus said, whoever marries the one who is divorced commits adultery. What happens to the person? Well, I'm glad that I'm not the judge. I'm not the judge. But there is one coming. Here come the judge. Do you know what that question implies? It implies that I'm willing to test God's patience. I'm willing to put God to the test. Do you mean what you say when Jesus said whoever divorces his spouse causes them to commit adultery and whoever marries the one so divorced commits adultery? Do you really mean what you say because the Bible says that adultery will consign one to eternal damnation unless you repent? Do you really mean what you say? In America... Ever since the late 1960s, professing Christians and their pastors have actually increasingly taught and led the people to dare God to keep his word. To test God's patience. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not God. And he is God. And when God ultimately decides to make a judgment call, it's final. He's God. Now, the interesting thing is that most people think, well, uh, if there's a problem, I'll take care of it later. But for now, uh, for now, this is what I feel like doing, and this is... You know, I prayed about it, and uh, I got peace. How many times as a lawyer did I receive that kind of language from a, a, a client? I prayed about it, and I got peace. Now, wait a minute. How do you pray about something that God has given an absolute statement on concerning his viewpoint, his opinion, his outlook, his judgment, his truth, Why do you have to pray about it? The mere fact that you say you have to pray about it says that you are willing to take the risk of testing God's patience. Maybe you never thought about it that way, but that's the truth. You're willing to take the risk of testing God's patience. Now, Quite frankly, I'm a human being just like you are, and I, I am far from perfect, but I really don't want to knowingly and intentionally and egregiously test God's patience on anything that he has spoken clearly about. And this brings us to another aspect, and I hope you'll listen very carefully. We'll call it loophole living. Loophole living. So what do people like to do? They like to try to find loopholes in the Bible. Can I find a place where God might have expressed something in a way that would allow me to get by with something that otherwise I am quite convinced he doesn't approve of? That's the thinking. You know what that is? Legalism. That is real legalism. That's real legalism. And we use it to test God's patience. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the
1: early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by His Spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, Behold how they love one another. Incredible! But the same can be found right now. Go to SaveUs.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's SaveUs.org. Click Sell Church.
0: How far are you willing to go to test God's patience? We were talking about some illustrations as to how we go about trying to do that. In the book of Numbers, we find an account of a fellow by the name of Balaam. He was a prophet, and uh, the king of Moab was scared spitless that Israel was going to come through and destroy Moab. And so he tried to get Balaam to come and curse Israel and bless Moab. And through a series of events, you can read about it in Numbers chapter 21, 22, 23, 24, in that area. Uh, Through a series of events, he offered him more and more goodies, enticements, incentives, whatever you want to call them, bribes, in order to curse Israel and bless Moab. Finally, even with God speaking to him through the mouth of a donkey and crushing his foot and having a donkey speak to him, he still didn't quite get it. And so finally, after I think it was four or five attempts to pray himself out from under the known will of God concerning God's blessing of Israel, He finally came through and blessed Israel and said, I can't, I can't curse Israel, but he was willing to, he was willing, he was willing to play footsie with the God of creation through a series of enticements to see if, you know, he could somehow get around what he knew God's will was with regard to Israel so he could get all these goodies. And then ultimately he sold Israel out by revealing to the king of Moab that if you can just seduce the Israeli men by Moabitish women and get them to commingle themselves, you will have won the game. You won't even have to fight the battle. You won't have to fight a war. You will win by seducing them. And that's what happened. And so the Bible comes down heavily on Balaam, a prophet, because he was willing to play footsie with the word, the will, and the ways of God. Question. Are you, have you, will you play footsie with the word, the will, and the ways of God? Recently, someone said, well, um, you know, it's just easier to live together today. It's so much uh, simpler for we young people to live together for financial reasons and so on. Uh, Just think how much money we can save. And uh, uh, so we'll just live together and then later get married. So let's suppose someone is challenged on that. So what do they do? They go to the Bible and try to find out any place where Jesus specifically said, or the Apostle Paul specifically said, thou shalt not live together before marriage. The Bible doesn't say anything about that directly. It doesn't say thou shalt not live together before you get married. It does say thou shalt not commit fornication and thou shalt not commit adultery. And you should flee from fornication. You should flee from adultery. But the person rationalizes in their mind, well, it's okay because... There's nothing specifically in the Bible that says, thou shalt not live together. Oh, we're not going to fornicate. We're just going to live together. Oh, really? Do you know what that is? That is an open, direct, egregious, notorious testing of God's patience. It is a legalistic Testing of God's patience. Loophole living. Always trying to find a way to justify what you know in your heart is not God's will. Now we're all capable of doing that. We're experts at rationalization, aren't we? What protects us against that? there are two things, well, three things. Number one, the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord will lead us to the love of the Lord. And the love of the Lord will lead us to spend quality time in his word every single day, studying to show ourselves approved unto God that we might be uh, throughly furnished unto every good work and that his word will be a light unto our, our, our path that we might not sin against him. It's very simple. Most people will not do that. Most Christians will not do that. Many pastors don't even spend regular time in the word. They're so busy doing business ministry. But there's no substitute for spending quality time in relationship with the Lord, not just in prayer, but in his word. That's how we protect ourselves against being testy with God. America is testy with God right now. Israel is supremely testy with God right now. So much so, Israel in national news today has this headline, Israel's new government faces a crisis of legitimacy. Another says, who's running the country? Isn't it interesting that the very same thing is being said about America? Facing a crisis of legitimacy and bringing around the question, who's running the country anyway? Why those questions? Because there are natural consequences, friends, to our rebellion against God as a people. This is the characteristic of nations, then, who rebel against God, who become testy with God, and because of that, They face a crisis of legitimacy. They lose their reputation and their strength throughout the world and lead their own people to a feeling of discombobulation. Who's running the country? And fear takes hold. You see, if you don't fear God, you will Fear man. God judges nations in this time, but He judges individuals in the time to come. So when we persist in testing God and testing His patience, we are actually setting up the trajectory for national destruction and personal damnation. You may not like to hear that, but that's what the Bible teaches. Because his his spirit his patience will not always strive with man. You want to know how to save America? We have to restore the fear of the Lord in the land. And it has to start in God's house. It has to start in the house of pastors. It has to start in the house of parachurch leaders. It has to start in in, uh, a mother's heart, a father's heart, and then in the children's heart. And it has to be instilled through faithful attendance to the word of God, the word will and the ways of the Lord in the household. This is not a short-term experience. This is a long-term endurance in patience as we approach the second coming of Christ. So if you're not doing those things, when are you going to start? Because today is the first day of the rest of your life. And if you procrastinate, you see, today was tomorrow, yesterday. So the time to start is today. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. But Israel did. And experienced a 2,000 year, in fact, more than that, a 2,700 year separation going back, starting with the 10 northern tribes and then with Judah for 2,000 years. Now, that's a long testing. God says, okay, I'm not going to put up with your rebellion. I'm not going to put up with it. Now I'm going to fulfill my covenant with a small remnant of your people. But I'm not going to put up with it with the rest of you. My spirit shall not always strive with man, even if their name be Israel, and even if they call themselves Jews, or even if their country is America, founded on Judeo-Christian values and principles I'm not going to put up with it. Today is the day of salvation. Today, we must make a choice not to test God and test his patience, but rather to walk with him and talk with him in love and in fellowship because there's nothing between ourselves and the Savior. We used to sing a song to that, nothing between, nothing between myself and the Savior. Don't let there be anything between, friend. Get a copy of the book, The Secret of the Lord. It's about restoring the fear of the Lord in your life. It has to start in the individual's life before it can take hold in the nation again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning its the foundation of everything. You may not like the term, but it's spread throughout the scriptures, New and Old Testament. In fact, every single promise of God is predicated on the fear of the Lord, including salvation itself. If the fear of the Lord does not take hold in your life, you will find no need to Repent. In fact, the absence of the fear of the Lord, the increasing absence of the fear of the Lord in a person's life is the premier test that they are testing God's patience. Think about it. It's a $20 book, yours for $15. It's a hardbound book, The Secret of the Lord. What's contained in that book? May provide the secret to your destiny. Fifteen dollars. I urge you to go ahead and get a copy. Past uh pastors, you need to have one for yourself. Fathers, mothers, grandparents, this is our this is our opportunity. We're called to build an ark right now because the wickedness has come before the Lord. And his spirit will not always strive with man. The book is on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. Give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255.